Welcome to LA Meekly, the most American podcast from the city where the only things read are the carpets at movie premieres. I am your host, Daniel. I'm Grigor. Aha ha ha! Today's episode is on how to be bodacious. Oh, Gregor, you are so stupid. Today we talk about the proletariat. I find this topic boring. The devil it is! Oh, cheese it. It's the LA Meekly boys. Beat it, Vladimir. You two, Gorbachev. We thought you two were blacklisted. No, I said Black Beauty was on my movie list. And I had black heads. Yeah, this is America. We don't have to worry about being blacklisted or excluded for who you are or what you believe. Now get back to Russia, you pinko commie traitors. And hey, Gorbachev, how about you put that wall back up? And think about extending it to Mexico while you're at it. (laughs) Yeah, and since you have the manpower, why don't you take that wall north to Canada? America's closed. Sorry. And another thing, build a temporary wall through Alaska, because I'm not sure yet. (sighs) So today we're going to talk about the proletariat. I find this topic boring. Como el diablo! It's the Oaxaca Meekly Boys. Guess who it? Hello! Hello. Mahoney Island, baby. Welcome to episode 26 of LA Meekly, the podcast. (laughs) <laughs> Patent pending <laughs> Copyright Infringement <laughs> We registered for the infringement So we have to pay ourselves every time we We like to just circle the money around When you launder money, that's how you do it Communism <laughs> So Hi Hello, Greg Welcome well, back Welcome back, welcome back I bet you never thought you'd be back here But here you are The world was crueler than you thought, wasn't it? <laughs> how does it feel there's, to be out on your own? There's not one friendly hand out there <laughs> Well, we got four right here. There, they get busy. They are, they Don't are get too working close. around the clock. And we've had many complaints. <laughs> this is episode 26. As we said, yeah. the podcast is now off of our health insurance. It's all on its own. Mm-hmm. One day until its own manhood, it drops something on its foot. What are you going to do? <laughs> Go to ER? You know how expensive that is? So on this episode for the month of February, as I was saying to you, yes. uh, we just ever so misunderstood what Black History <laughs> Month is. And we're going to be talking about the blacklist this month. We're the really- Hollywood blacklist. I thought we got it. We'll never learn. They take us to the Museum of Tolerance and we never walk away with the right thing. (laughs) I walked away with the tour guide. I'm not giving that back. Yeah, we we decided with absolutely no idea what February was going to represent at all that we wanted to talk about communism, Hollywood blacklists, actors not being able to find work, all Mm -hmm. the things we love. Sickles, hammers, (laughs) you name it. But those two. Unions, guilds, (laughs) fellowships, (laughs) committees, brotherhoods. Secret handshakes. (laughs) We're going to reveal it all tonight. We are naming names, Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) And Night Shyamalan. Kami, they're back. They're back. Every single one of them. And they're here. Welcome to Blacklist 2. <laughs> Bigger and blacker. <laughs> when we were first talking about alley history and everything we want to talk about, this was on my list. And now I'm glad that we were able to talk. It was on ta- your blacklist. It was on my blacklist, which means I'm never supposed to talk about it. Talk first about rule it. about fellow communists. You don't talk about you fellow communists. Yeah. Second rule of fellow communists. You don't talk about fellow communists. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but they list that twice. I haven't seen that movie. You should. Because it's made by commies. <laughs> Chuck Palachuk or whatever his name is. Kami. <laughs> That movie's about secret organizations meeting in the dark, (laughs) 
So without much further ado. School me, please, God. That's what I'm here for. School is back in session. (laughs) Communism. Where did it come from? Are you a communist? Are my neighbors communists? Early 1900s. Fade in on Uh, a sleepy Russian shtetl. (laughs) Communism is born. It becomes the official government of choice in Russia, or as they now insist on being called, the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, across the Pacific, democracy, the arch nemesis of communism, keeps a wary Freemason eye on the Soviets from the safety of its fortress, the United States. (laughs) Our heroes walk in, Buck Rogers and Duck Dodgers. Of the 21st and a half century? But ideas are sneaky Mm. and hard to trace, so Mm. organizations were formed within the United States to try to keep an eye on things within its own borders. Oh, you know it's not going to like that as America. The earliest of these started in 1918 to keep an eye not only on people with communist sympathies in the United States, but also on a more urgently worrisome ideology at the time, fascism. Mm. Locally, an organization we talked about very briefly once, the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League was formed in July 1936 as a voice to let people know that some of the people working in Hollywood the Jews, saw what was going on in Germany and also in the United States and they didn't like what they saw. (laughs) By 1938, this group had around 5,000 members with people like Dorothy Parker, Fritz Lang, Oscar Hammerstein, Dashiell Hammett, Mm. Ernst Lubitsch, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Mm. Chico Marx, none of the other Marxes, um, except for one Marx. Carl, the, the fifth Marx brother, <laughs> even worse than Zeppo, <laughs> Benny Goodman, and Eddie Cantor. We're going to be naming it. There's going to be a lot of. You've already named a I've, lot of names. I, mean, I like some of those people. I do not like what you're no, doing. No, no, right these now. are good guys. They don't like Nazis. Oh, wait, no, you love Nazis. Oh, my God. I drive a Ford Swastika. (laughs) So these guys, the anti-Nazi... Yeah, we are going to be naming a lot of names. But we're naming them all. I'm naming good and bad. The people have to know. Yeah. And they're all bad. They're all dead, too. Most of them. Most. Kirk Douglas is still around. Is he? Um, Have we been weekend at Bernie'd? We will... We will leave a memorial at the end of this podcast so when he does die that you will think that this entire time we were aware aware. And uh, Green Day's Time of Your Life will be playing and it'll only be <laughs> this, clips of him when he's old. It's amazing that that song is still a song, you know? <laughs> it's a good song. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's punk. They used to be sort of punk, but they really went punk with that song. Yeah, I mean, they, you cannot sell it to little kids, you know what I mean? Mature <laughs> this only. This isn't your grandma's punk. <laughs> so these guys, the Anti-Nazi League, they had rallies at the Shrine Auditorium. Oh. Tellingly, for the future, the only studio heads with the guts to be in an organization like this were the Warner Brothers. Unfortunately, another organization popped up May 26, 1938, the Dyes Committee. It might be D's. I'm going to say it's Dyes for the purpose of this. It's German. It sounds very German, though. The Dyes Committee. Yeah. Headed by a Democrat from Texas named Martin Dyes Jr. Is that a verb? Are you saying a sentence? Martin Dyes Jr. <laughs> Come <on>, Jr. <laughs> they were an official committee of the House of Representatives created to investigate subversive organizations, in particular suspected Nazis and okay. KKK members. Only instead of KKK members, the committee decided to focus on the American Communist Party because they suspected them of meddling with the Works Progress Administration. This committee was a reincarnation of similar earlier committees like the McCormick Dickstein Committee and the Fish Committee before that. So it goes Fish Dick dies. (laughs) Their biggest power was that they had the power to subpoena people to appear before the committee. Luckily, dies knew precisely where to look. Hollywood or Commiewood as he might Uh, call it. Uh, I call Uh, it that. He didn't come up with that. I I want this Hollywood sign changed to that. (laughs) Commiewood land. Commiewood land. (laughs) Just keep making letters. A place he's considered to be infested with communists. Come on. Infested is a strong word. Yeah. This Swarming. W- <laughs> sure, we have a queen communist <laughs> that we all produce honey for. 
but can you really call us infested? This wasn't the first time Hollywood had come under suspicion either. J. Edgar Hoover, the crossdresser, had once launched a big investigation into communism in Hollywood under Operation Compic, mm-hmm. or Communist Infiltration Motion Picture Industry. But the Dyes Committee got specific. They had names given to them by an ex-communist named John Leach. Oh, the first name namer. And in 1940, 42 names were printed as being under investigation. Ooh. Names like... Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney, and Catherine Hepburn. Dyes himself came to LA and met with 12 of the accused at the Biltmore Hotel and cleared four of them and then decided all the rest were fine, but he still had suspicions about one guy, Lionel Stander. I don't know who that is. I do. Really? Yeah. Wow. I know Lionel Stander. Keep an eye on Lionel Stander. Okay, keep an eye. Is he going to come up later? Yeah, or I have a thing on him. Interesting. Wow, I foreshadowed you. <laughs> the problem with this inquisition was that they had no facts or any proof at all to back up their accusations. This committee was not very popular because they were very anti-FDR at a time when most people liked FDR, so this attack on specific Hollywood stars was just seen as sort of a cheap publicity stunt by the committee to draw more attention to themselves because it was a guaranteed headline grabber, which maybe we should consider doing. Yeah, definitely. The committee also went after the Anti-Nazi League, calling it a communist front organization and helped in their demise. People who were anti-fascist were looked down on up until the US got into World War II when it became official policy to be anti-fascist. Another shining moment for the Dyes Committee was when Dyes threatened in 1941 to subpoena all Japanese people in L.A., claiming that he had evidence of a plot against America by the Japanese fishermen living on Terminal Island, which I'm I'm sure was a genuine concern, but just hearing that sentence is so ridiculous. What's your evidence? A hunch. (laughs) Several hunches in a row. (laughs) All the peanut benders at Dodger Stadium are in a plot to kill FDR, and I know it. They're going to use two Zeppelins. This committee also had a hand in getting Japanese people sent to internment camps. So once World War II really got going in America, though, the Dyes Committee was mostly put on hold since the communists, who were once to be suspected, were now our greatest ally in the war effort. And we can't be, you know, rounding them up. Yeah, why not? Let's round them up. (laughs) They could be our captors and our allies at the same time. For sure. We're fighting a war with you by capturing you. (laughs) Get in there with the Japanese. But that didn't stop another organization from taking aim at Hollywood for communist ties. The California Joint Fact-Finding Committee on Un-American Activities was formed by Jack Tenney basically to continue the work of the defunct Dyes Committee and held yet another round of investigations into communism in L.A. in October 1944. Jack Tenney's investigation was called Reds in Movies. It's funny that they're blacklisting all these writers. They need a writer just to come up with some of the titles of this crap. <laughs> they're good old-fashioned American titles. They, yeah, they, they're... Straight into the point. Johnny's Home. Rock Hudson. <laughs> so nobody was cooperating with Reds in movies, and that pers- that quickly, like, uh, okay, I guess we've cried wolf. It's not happening this time. But then the war stopped, and suddenly the Soviet Union, our greatest ally, was now our greatest threat. So when the way the world was going to be once the war was over started becoming clear in the dying days of the Reich, certain groups and individuals in America began to position themselves favorably for the new world order, if that makes sense. Listen to it back, play it again. New world order. New world order. (laughs) New world order. Listen to it backwards and you'll hear the plans for a new world order. One of these groups was the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, formed in 1944. Again, all these people could have used communist writers. These are not very catchy. Yeah, they are not. I'm not signing up with that. 
party. Oh, the MPAPAPI? <laughs> They're a very conservative group of showbiz people who are strongly anti-communist, which was the new official policy of the U.S. government. Yeah. They were founded by guys like King Vidor and Walt Disney. Huh. Amongst their around 1,500 members were Gary Cooper, Cecil B. DeMille, Victor Fleming, Ward Bond, Clark Gable, and Ronald Reagan, and their president was John Wayne. Neither... <laughs> And vice president, a shotgun. <laughs> a shotgun in a rocking chair that won't stop rocking. <laughs> Call in the treasurer. It's a horse. <laughs> horse dragging gunpowder. Needless to say, this group was accused of being anti-labor, anti-women, anti-Semitic, and anti-black. Does that surprise you at nah, all? Not at one bit. In opposition. Ooh, comfy hoods. <laughs> in op- they were the KKK without hoods. <laughs> they were not ashamed of it. In opposition to the alliance were groups like the Free World Association with supporters, good guys like Orson Welles and James Cagney. I know I laughed through that. He yeah. was a he was a weirdo, but I mean he had good ideas. All right. He liked kiwis. And I'm not talking about New Zealanders. <laughs> I'm talking about the fruit that looks like testicles. <laughs> but one man's testicles in particular. <laughs> Charles Foster Kane. <laughs> That's what Rosebud was. I get it now. <laughs> America is corrupt. <laughs> but now that the war against communism was officially on, Big Daddy woke up and the Dyes Committee was back in action. Oh, Only now that Republicans had taken control of Congress for the first time since the 30s, a temporary subcommittee of the committee was made permanent in January 1945 and took center stage. The House Committee of Un-American Activities, or the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC. HUAC, as I'll call it. HUAC. A name come up with by uh, Al Pacino. (laughs) He popped out into this world a little early just to go, HUAC! And then he came back. First premature words. It was HUAC's duty to investigate any disloyalty or communist ties in American citizens. And like I said, being a group with an ideology that was not very popular pre-war, now post-war, the rest of the country came around to their way of thinking. And now HUAC decided they wanted their crack at Hollywood pinkos. But what put them back in their sights? Hollywood, that is. The Hollywood Black Blacklist is pretty much a fable with the moral of united we stand, divided we fall, yeah. played out in the crucible of Los Angeles, and this is the first example of that. It started with a very popular local trade paper, The Hollywood Reporter. Do you know this? Not in us. Settle in. Oh boy. You might want to cancel your subscription now. <laughs> I know you read it daily. I need to know. Who might be the young Han Solo? <laughs> the man in charge of The Hollywood Reporter at the time was the man who founded The Hollywood Reporter, Billy Wilkerson. He was born in 1890 in Nashville and grew up to go to medical school in Philadelphia until his dad died and he inherited all of his gambling debt. Okay. Is that true? Uh, Yeah. Why would I make that up? (laughs) It sounds really funny. (laughs) No, it's true. People die. A dad couldn't die. No, no, no. His dad didn't die. No, 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 no. So to make quick money, he quit medicine and started working with great foresight at a Nickelodeon in New Jersey. He began climbing up the ladder of the East Coast film industry until he was eventually in charge of distribution for Carl Lemley's Universal Pictures. Then he started getting delusions of grandeur, and in 1927, he tried to start his own movie studio, but the others already had such a tight grip on the industry, he quickly found himself to be a failure. That's better than slowly finding out you're a failure. (laughs) Yeah. His next big idea was to start a trade paper that was actually based in Hollywood where all the action was now happening. So he moved there in 1929. 29? Oh, God, the year. And in 1930, The Hollywood Reporter was open and reporting for a reporter. (laughs) And then the depression hit. To keep them afloat, Billy Wilkerson got involved in nightclubs, which sounds like a nursery rhyme. (laughs) (laughs) He got involved in nightclubs and alcohol and developed relationships with guys like Meyer Lansky, Mickey Cohen, and Bugsy Siegel. They love gambling debt. Oh, yeah. That's 
that's that's <laughs> how they run their game. We knew your father. As you can tell, they made it through the 30s, but Wilkerson also had friends like Howard Hughes, who introduced him to a friend of his named J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover here. Who seemed to have some sort of obsession with communists and dressing like a woman yeah. in Hollywood and started giving inside scoops on the situation to Billy Wilkerson. The reason why Wilkerson went through with what he decided to do next isn't entirely clear, but there are a lot of possibilities that might all be true because humans are complex and we illustrate that regularly, hence we are a good podcast. <laughs> Leave us a review. Billy Wilkerson had an obsession with communism in Hollywood also, and starting in 1945, he had been writing anti-communist articles in his paper against what he called the Red Beachhead. Alright. I he- thought that was a drink. <laughs> He was also anti-Screenwriters Guild. The Screenwriters Guild didn't like how the Hollywood Reporter wouldn't cover a story unless the studio bought ad space in their paper. So the Guild ba- the guild banned all of its members from buying ad space in the Hollywood Reporter in protest. Billy Wilkerson responded by not listing screenwriting credits with those of directors and actors wow. in a movie review. This is just my theory. This might be why writers today don't get as much credit as actors and directors do. That could be true. Thank you, Billy Wilkerson. <laughs> but now, with Hoover on his side, Billy Wilkerson had actual names to go with his communist accusations. He knew the gravity of what publishing these names meant. He knew publishing them would damage many lives and that in doing so, it meant he could potentially alienate himself from the industry and lose everything that he had worked for. Some think that he wanted to do it just to get a good story. Some think he was being pressured to do it from his mafia affiliations. Some think that he was just going along with the political rhetoric that was being yelled around at the time. Some think he wanted to do it to get in good with the studio heads. Some think he wanted to do it to get revenge at the studio heads for boxing him out of having his own studio. Something he was afraid that if people in Hollywood started coming out as sympathetic to communism, it would turn off audiences and Hollywood as a whole would suffer and collapse and he wanted to nip that in the bud. Something he just plain genuinely disliked communism and he felt that it was his moral duty. Billy Wilkerson was a very religious man and religion is an enemy of communism. Supposedly, he went to his priest with his dilemma and asked if he should go through with it and the priest told him, get those bastards, Billy. So on July 29th, 1946, the Hollywood Reporter published an article called A Vote for Joe Stalin that named 11 Hollywood employees as communist sympathizers and the fire was ablaze once again, as red as what they're fighting against. (laughs) Huak was now bringing down the hammer full force on Hollywood. What the Hollywood Reporter did is an embarrassment to the industry and they did lose a lot of readers. They also gained a lot of readers. They continued to cover the story almost every day for the duration of what became known as the Inquisition in Eden. But once it was over, they didn't talk about it for years out of shame. They didn't issue a formal apology until 2012 when Wilkerson's son finally was like, "Mm, sorry, you shouldn't have done that. He inherited his dad's moral debt. (laughs) <laughs> you can't go to the mafia for that one. So now, Huak was headed by a very conservative Republican from New Jersey named J. Parnell Thomas. This is pre-Joseph McCarthy. Yeah. But even when he was involved with Huak, he had nothing to do with what happened in Hollywood. So Joseph yeah. McCarthy, you know, go listen to your McCarthy podcast or whatever no, you want. I was, he has nothing I was to do the hell of A man who was a member of the Hollywood Huak committee was renowned non-crook Richard Nixon. Hmm. Huak alleged that communists had infiltrated mass popular culture and were putting pro communist messages into their content to brainwash the public. Trojan horse that stuff in. Uh, Hey, we need some sort of Greek sympathist. Oh yeah, we need to come over here and tell me about your little tales, huh? How to get get past the cyclops? (laughs) Some some sort of nymphs? How you're gonna fight off a nymph? (laughs) 
I don't know about that. Yeah. Maybe I don't want to fight off a nymph. <laughs> Maybe I want to sleep with all the sirens. Their idea of brainwashing the public, this included portraying the U.S. in a negative light in movies that they knew would be shown internationally. Here's one. They also claimed that they had been sending coded messages in movies, alerting communists in Europe during the war about the locations of American air raids on Germany so that they would know mm. to stay away or to take cover. Mm. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's really... They give them way too much credit. Yeah. Communists are not that organized. These guys are pole vaulters because they are making a giant leap. <laughs> For mankind. <laughs> Emboldened by the articles of The Hollywood Reporter and courted by the John Wayne-led Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, Huak secured $75,000 in funding and set up shop at the Biltmore Hotel again in Los Angeles to continue their investigation in May 1947. And on September 21st, 41 people were subpoenaed to appear in front of Congress in Washington, D.C. Now let's take a step back. Were there actually communists in Hollywood? Can you want me to ask that? Were there actually communists in Hollywood? I plead the fifth. <laughs> Guilty! <laughs> the answer is yes. Communism is a political party and isn't inherently affiliated with Stalinism, yeah. just like how Islam is a religion and isn't inherently affiliated with ISIS. Not to say Stalinists and ISIS are similar, but they're both organizations that tarnish the good name of something that is not malicious or to be afraid of. But much like how many people today don't really think that way, Huwak was also confusing the two. Mm -hmm. They also didn't have much evidence to support their claims, most movie studios at the time weren't interested in putting out any movies with any sort of message yeah. or meaning in them. Sam Goldwyn said, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. It's a good writer. <laughs> One example they cited was the movie Mission to Moscow that was made in 1943, which Jack Warner was told to make by the Roosevelt administration to change people's minds about staying out of the war by showing Russia in a positive light and showing American isolationism in a negative light. Huwak saw this as a communist fair. Yeah. Other pieces of evidence were Russian words being used in movies. Mm. What Huwak was really against, though, was liberalism and yeah. social change. Say what you will about those borscht-guzzling reds. Communism has some good ideas. Yes, uh, Oh, oh, no. Oh, God. Oh, here. God. I hear the helicopter. They're here for us. Communist police. <laughs> you two aren't supporting socialism, are you? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's something else. Well, all right, comrades. <laughs> so some of these good ideas, workers union, social yes. security. These are communist concepts that our democracy has adopted and is better for. The guy who wrote Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, a movie that epitomizes the American spirit, Sidney Buckman wrote that, was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. Hollywood being a pretty liberal town, a lot of the people working in show business weren't so much gulag, cage. GB commies as just social rights advocates. Yes. That being said, it was understandable also that people were afraid. Stalin was real, spies were real, and the Soviet Union was a powerful country with powerful weapons, mm -hmm. not least of them being an ideology. Hollywood studios were based on clearly defined hierarchies, and the equality of communism was something people in the higher-up positions feared. But the way they went about addressing this fear is absolutely deplorable. It's the, it was an embarrassing time in our country. Oh, yeah. it's horrible. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> so back Back to September 21st, 1947, 41 people are subpoenaed, 22 friendly witnesses, mm -hmm. and 19 unfriendly witnesses. Yes. The hearing started October 20th, 1947 with the friendly witnesses. These were people they didn't suspect of being communists, but knew could be counted on to provide information. Many in this group of 22 were members of the Always Willing to Please Huak Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. Walt Disney testified, so did Ronald Reagan, Louis B. Meyer, Gary Cooper, Sam Wood, named name 
names and warned to keep an eye on writers. Ayn Rand didn't name names but fully cooperated with all their other questions. The friendlies were allowed to read prepared statements and Jack Warner said, Jack Warner, my how you have turned. Ideological termites have burrowed into many American industries, organizations, and societies. Wherever they may be, I say let us dig them out and get rid of them. My brothers and I will be happy to subscribe generously to a pest removal fund. Then it was time for the unfriendlies. Of the 19, 11 were to testify Uh and they saw that nobody in Washington was on their side so they wanted some moral support from back home and they did have support back home. On October 29th, a week into the hearings, Variety put out an ad saying how disgusted and outraged they were at what was happening and asked who's un-American and then underneath that, 116 names of people who had the courage to put their John Hancock on this declaration. People like Leonard Bernstein, Catherine Hepburn, Henry Fonda, Arthur Miller, Gregory Peck, Otto Preminger, and then kind of nullifying the list for reasons you'll hear later, Bud Schulberg and Elia Kazan. Yeah. Before the subpoenas even started, there had been a rally on May 19th, 1947 at Gilmore Stadium against Huoc with Henry Wallace in attendance and Catherine Hepburn reading a speech written by Dalton Trumbo that said, silence the artist and you silence the most articulate voice the people have. Answering the call for support, though, were members of the Committee for the First Amendment. This was an organization formed by John Huston, William Wyler, and Philip Dunn to protect the right to exercise the First Amendment and be able to freely believe in whatever you want. Their first meeting was at Ira Gershwin's house and grew to include members like Charles Boyer, Joseph Cotton, Joan Crawford, Van Johnson, Spencer Tracy, Gene Kelly, Frank Sinatra, Vincent Price, Lauren Bacall, and Humphrey Bogart. This group... These were just parties. Like, why are they going to dress it up? They're just partying. They were the craziest of parties. (laughs) They weren't just parties. (laughs) And I'm not talking about the communist party. (laughs) This group had bought national radio time, and on October 26th, they broadcast... Hollywood fights back, exclamation point. That's the title. It was a half-hour anti-Huoc plea for the investigations to end, starring people like Judy Garland saying things like, we don't mind being called bad actors, but we resent being called bad Americans. And boy, were they called bad actors. (laughs) Groucho Marx pretended to be J. Parnell Thomas. That's funny. After the program, the committee sent a delegation of 26 to Washington, headed by Bogart and Bacall, armed with a petition signed by some 80 celebrities with Bogart saying, things like, I am an outraged and angry citizen who feels that my basic civil liberties are being taken away from me. On November 2nd, they had a part two of the show with Danny Kaye, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Rita Hayworth, and Peter Lorre, but by then it was already too late. The day after the first program on October 27th, the hearing of the 11 unfriendlies began. Here's who those 11 were. I'm going to give you their names. I'm going to name all the names. You're going to name the names? Don't worry, I'm naming names. (laughs) And a little bit about what they did. Alva Bessie, a screenwriter whose career was just getting started and who also fought the Nazis in the Spanish Civil War. Herbert J. Bieberman, Mm -hmm. a writer and director who wasn't particularly well known. That's all I have to say about him. Bertolt Brecht, who's a very famous German writer. Lester Cole, he wrote a few Charlie Chan movies and he wrote The Invisible Man Returns and was instrumental in getting the Screenwriters Guild going again. He was also an official member of the Communist Party. Don't tell anyone. Mm. Cut that part out. Nix, nix. Nixon, Nixon. <laughs> Edward Dimitrik, a director of such movies as Raymond Chandler's Murder, My Sweet and Crossfire. He also helped define the film noir genre. He was also a member of the Communist Party and will come back later to haunt us. Ring Lardner Jr., a member of the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League and Academy Award-winning writer. He was also a member of the Communist Party. John Howard Lawson, the first president of the Screenwriters Guild and writer of movies like Blockade and Sahara. Albert Maltz, an O. Henry Award-winning writer who also wrote 
wrote Pride of the Marines and is an uncredited writer on Casablanca. Mm. He was also a member of the Communist Party. Don't tell anyone. Mm-mm, keep that a secret. He was a pro-American writing hero during World War II and was immediately after made a villain. Samuel Ornitz, a screenwriter and founder of the Screenwriters Guild. Adrian Scott, a producer who also helped define the film noir genre. He was also defining member of the Communist Party. <laughs> and lastly, the most famous behind probably Brecht is Dalton Trumbo. We'll get more into him later. He was one of the highest paid writers in Hollywood at the time, and he was a member of the Communist Party. So the trial of these 11 began, and from the start, it was clear that this was not going to be a fair fight. To start, they insisted on addressing all of the Jewish people involved in this group by their original Jewish names, not their business names. Unlike the friendly witnesses, these 11 were not allowed to read prepared speeches. (laughs) They were instead brought before the committee and asked the infamous question, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Only one of these men actually answered the question, Brecht said no. The rest refused the very idea of the question and claimed protection under the First Amendment. Being screenwriters, they insisted on reading prepared speeches anyway, (laughs) but they didn't get very far. Alva Bessie managed to get in. It's my third draft. (laughs) (laughs) I I mailed this to myself so you can't can't steal this. This is copyrighted. I brought Lawrence Olivier to read it for me. Uh, Imagine this. Imagine it's not me. Imagine you're talking to some hunky man. You know, the straightest man there is Rock Hudson. And he, 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 you know, he's playing with this other guy, Liberace. (laughs) You'll find out who he is. Just think glitter and a weird haircut. You'll find out what glitter is when your kids grow up. <laughs> so Alva Bessie managed to get in. I will never aid or abet such a committee in its patent attempt to foster the sort of intimidation and terror that is the inevitable precursor of a fascist regime before he was escorted out of the oh, building. Okay, well. Trembo was dragged out yelling things like, this is the beginning of the American concentration camp. After they asked Lardner the question, he responded, I could answer the question exactly the way you want it, but if I did, I would hate myself in the morning. That's funny. Law- Lawson was asked the question, I assume he sighed, and then responded, It is unfortunate and tragic that I have to teach this committee the basic principles of America. (laughs) And then the gavel banging started, but he kept going, and J. Parnell Thomas banged his gavel 16 times, supposedly breaking it, as Lawson was escorted out yelling, Hitler's Germany, Hitler's (laughs) tactics. What year was this? 47? 47. Hitler's dead for two years. That's pretty, that's hitting close to home. Yeah. The hearings were closed after Brecht, who fled back to Germany the next day and never returned. Wow, really? Leaving, that was, yeah. I didn't know that. Leaving just the unfriendly 10 or as we now know them, the Hollywood 10. Yeah. One for each amendment in the Bill of Rights. Look at that. Congress was not charmed by their antics and on November 24th, 1947, they voted 346 to 17 <laughs> to charge them for contempt of Congress. Yep, fun, baby. They were convicted in early 1948 and each fined $1,000. Bieberman and Dimitrik got six months but the rest were sentenced to a year in federal prison. They appealed the sentence in June 1949 and lost and then took it to the Supreme Court but in April 1950 the Supreme Court decided not to hear their case. This meant that anyone else accused of being a communist or whatever else they decided to accuse you of you could no longer claim protection under the First Amendment of the Constitution Mm -hmm. because that does not work here. (laughs) But the thing is Huwak didn't have the power to create a legal blacklist. The Hollywood blacklist as we know it was imposed on Hollywood by Hollywood itself. Yeah, It was an unofficial punishment. 
Yeah, meh, unofficial. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to give you an unofficial punishment for speaking up against me. <laughs> Hollywood, they talked a big game and were ready to make a stand when the subpoenas happened. But when the public saw how the 10 looked in the hearings, it really was not favorable to them. They came off as unnecessarily mean and sometimes even crazy. But I mean, what's crazy about getting dragged out of a building yelling about Hitler? Screaming until a gavel breaks. <laughs> if that's crazy, give me a Napoleon hat. <laughs> Get the giant butterfly net <laughs> and strap a jacket on me. You know, Hollywood is nothing without the public on its side. Yeah. So show business started to backtrack on their words. The day after the verdict was reached on the 10, November 25th, 1947, the president of the Motion Picture Association of America, Eric Johnston, who, when this whole mess started, declared, as long as I live, there will never be a blacklist in Hollywood and that he would never be party to anything as un-American as a blacklist. He called a meeting with 48 movie executives at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York mm -hmm. City. The studio heads, ever shrewd, were afraid of what the public turning on them might do to the film industry, so they issued what is now known as the Waldorf Statement, where they vowed in regarding to the 10, we will forthwith discharge or suspend without compensation those in our employ, and we will not re-employ any of the 10 until such time as he is acquitted or has purged himself of contempt and declares under oath he is not a communist, and that no communist or other subversives will be employed by Hollywood. Ooh. And the blacklist was on. Set your phasers to black. Any other subversives is really scary because the, their their reach is so oh, yeah. yeah. Anything. Anything. Oh, what? You don't like movies about cowboys? You That's didn't a little eat all subversive. that hot dog. <laughs> what are you, subversive? <laughs> These ten no longer had jobs and were not welcome back into Hollywood and that went as a warning for anyone else caught being a communist, but it didn't stop there. A few days after this statement, Bogart and Bacall started to back away. Yep. They claimed they didn't fully understand the situation and didn't know those guys actually were communists and had been, quote, duped. Bogey. Bogey. Come on. Of all the gin joints in all of Soviet Russia, you had to back out of this one. <laughs> and with those two silence, no other big stars stood up against any of this for another 10 years. Even Edward G. Robinson, even Edward G. G. Robinson, Robinson, who had been paying all the legal expenses of the 10, eventually caved in and named names himself. Oh. By February 25th, 1948, the whole committee for the First Amendment was disbanded. The guilds fully cooperated with the blacklist because they were afraid of making the rest of their members look bad if they didn't. So they thought they were protecting you know, their own people. The Screen Actors Guild was being run by Reagan, and he was real strict on enforcing the blacklist. Yeah. The only one who seemed to be against it was Sam Goldwyn. But, you know, what's one man? But Sam Goldwyn. <laughs> one person can't stop something like this. It took the cooperation of the entire industry to pull this off, yeah. and they let it happen by staying silent and keeping their heads down while their friends' lives were ruined. But it didn't end there. Huak put out yearly reports on who they suspected yeah. were communists, which contributed to what many people refer to as the gray list, which was a list of people not officially forbidden to work in Hollywood, but understood that you shouldn't hire this person. Yeah. Then in 1949, eager to please, the American Legion gave a list of 100 people they had evidence as being communist that they circulated to the studios and then came Big Daddy. Daddy? There was a right-wing magazine called Counterattack that was the newsletter of facts to combat communism. This was started by some former FBI agents, and on June 22nd, 1950, they published Red Channels, the report of communism influence in radio and television, which listed 151 names of supposed communists and their CV, Communist Vitae. This became the Bible of the Grey List and called out people like Lloyd Bridges, Harry Belafonte, <laughs> Lena Horne, Arthur Miller, Orson Welles, Langston Hughes, Dorothy Parker, Gypsy Rose Lee, Leonard Bernstein, Elmer Bernstein, Burgess Mer 
Meredith, Pete Seeger, Dashiell Hammett, Burl Ives, Charlie Chaplin, Luis Buñuel, and Zero Mostel, and did, many, many more. I think one of the most famous things that Red Channel said, it ended the career of a woman named Marsha Hunt, who like, had just started her career. And she wasn't even, never at any point, communist, she was just a Hollywood liberal, but she, the day she found out, she was at dinner or lunch with Eleanor Roosevelt. And she's like, well, <laughs> that, was it, that was the end of her career. Oh, check, please. <laughs> set, I gotta be going. Out. Put this on uh, the presidential tab. <laughs> the whole business of Red Channels and how they got their information was really shady, and the sorts of things that would get you in Red Channels were speaking at a teacher's union meeting, oh, or supporting African yeah. famine relief programs, exactly. or attending world peace conferences, and they listed all of the things that you did. What they didn't list were all of the anti-communist organizations you may have been a part of also. Yeah. Some people were even mixed up for other people and were listed incorrectly. Wow. Their careers were still ruined. Like, oh, you're uh, McCartney? I meant McCartney. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. No Beatles this decade. Speaking of Beatles, Ed Sullivan loved Red Channels. Really? He, big f- he, he seems like Every the night type. before bed, read it. Daddy, will you read me the thing again? Uh, Pete Seeger. <laughs> <laughs> he one time gave a quarter to a homeless man. Gami. Charlie Chaplin once wore a red tie to a dinner. Kami. <laughs> Almost 60% of all the people being accused were writers. The whole thing just, it just descended into Mad Max. It's so sensational. Who's a commie? Yeah. People. <laughs> Sharing a truck? Kami. <laughs> Drinking gasoline for water? Kami. People were accusing other people just to settle old scores or for personal advancements. Careers were being ruined left and right. Accused people got hate mail. They got death threats. Friendships were ended. Marriages ended. Some people fled the country. It was like a little mini lead up to a holocaust that's what was happening people were being targeted and punished for exercising their rights of free speech and freedom of beliefs as one guy who later testified and named seven names said he never forgave himself but he was commended by reagan and the movie executives he said when a man performs an act of personal betrayal of his friends he's regarded as a 100 percent all-american patriot (laughs) and then round two started oh yes here we go so it's 1951 and huak have just went through the movie industry and did commie spring cleaning And you know, they looked around and thought, I bet we can get cleaner. <laughs> who else can we get? Huwak's research director, Raphael Nixon, who was a crook, decided to this time illuminate the prestigious position that this Communist Party had in Hollywood. Now chaired, Huwak was chaired by a man named John S. Wood. They went into round two with a new strength created by public opinion based on a lot of political events that were happening in the day. Senator Joe McCarthy had a particular style of witch hunting that started February 1950. He was very aggressive and people really liked him because he got on everyone's case. You're a commie. You're a commie. I have no proof for anything. Trump. Trump. He's, I, I keep reading I'm like Trump this yeah. is Trump you're decommissioned <laughs> his timeless catchphrase <laughs> you also had the conviction of Alger Hiss who was a mm-hmm. former US State Department official who was convicted in 19 19- yes of perjury concerning his dealings with Whitaker Chambers who accused him of membership of communist espionage ring. You had the fall of China to the communist. You had the rise of China to the communist. Thank Dolly you. China. <laughs> keep singing. I'm going to keep talking. <laughs> Some atomic spies, Judy Coplin and Klaus Fuchs. The first successful atomic explosion by the Soviet Union was done in 1950. The passing of the McCarran Internal Security Act which required all communists and communist organizations to register as such and included the arrest of suspected subversives. And you also had the arrest of the Rosenbergs, Julius and Ethel who were suspected of being Soviet spies during information that was bringing down American planes. Let them fry. <laughs> Didn't that what happened? They electrocuted them to death? Yeah, to death. They were In right. some sort of a seating device? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the lazy boy. Electric lazy boy. Killer lazy boy. <laughs> Someone write that. Th- Trumbo, write that. <laughs> the sparkle lounger. <laughs> <laughs> Plug it in and go to hell. 
So it felt like because of all these events and everything that was happening in Hollywood, it felt like communism was a real threat to America. So yeah. Huwak had a lot of support behind them. They also had a much more systematic approach this time around to bringing people in. They, they were armed. what they were doing at this exactly. point. Exactly. Like, oh yeah, we got the hang of this. Yeah. They were armed with subpoenas from congressional committees to get people to appear before administrative boards. So they had, now they had like, they were just raking it in. So what typically went down was an individual who raised suspicions of the committee received a subpoena to appear before Huwak. During the hearing, the requested individual suspected of his communist ties was questions about their political beliefs and activities. And then the more appalling thing came. You were asked at that point to provide the names of the people involved in everything. Um, one more, as you were walking out of the yeah. courtroom. One more thing. Um, <laughs> Shut the are, doors. <laughs> who are all your friends? Who gave you a right to everything? So any individuals named in this manner then received a subpoena themselves and that widened the committee's yeah. scope. So It's they like were just, a virus that they it, injected it, into subject one. Spread it amongst your friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the worst pyramid scheme. So those brave souls who refused to answer the committee's questions or to identify other members couldn't be indicted, like you said, for contempt of Congress and sent to prison as it happened already. Those being questioned by the committee had the option of pleading the fifth, referring to the Fifth Amendment, which allows someone to avoid self-incrimination, but pleading the fifth often reeked of guilt. Fifth Amendment communists says... What are you trying to hide? Yeah, what are you trying to hide? What do you got? You, you got something in your pocket. We all. What's the ace in the hole? You told me you have an ace in the hole, but I don't know what it is yet. McCarthy referred them as Fifth Amendment communists, which yeah. you're a jerk. Really, like, I think, yeah, you can be sent away from prison for like six months to ten months for contempt of Congress, or you can round out your friends, but like really being blacklisted was the worst thing because you were just out of a job. Like, you you wrote for 20 years. Are, are you going to, do you talk about what the Film Academy decided their new rule against people who pleaded the fifth? No, I didn't know that. What? You couldn't be nominated for an Oscar if you pleaded the fifth really? in front of the Congress. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow, that is savage. Yeah. On a dime, like, okay, we all hate communists too. <laughs> Whatever you want. It was the We'll change every single world. Sure, we won't have black people in the Academy, <laughs> but no communists. It was just a trend at the time. And keep in mind, no real laws were broken and no crimes were being called yeah. into question. It was not a crime to have a different political belief or to exercise your right to free speech yeah. or invoke the Fifth Amendment. There's nothing to, like, if you're trying to fight it, like, what do you fight? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And while the first round of hearings started with this feeling of patriotism and active resistance, after the Hollywood Ten were arrested and all the studios turned their back on everyone, these new hearings started with, a like, this deflated resignation going around. <laughs> like, everyone's like, alright, like, I don't know. Like, it, this is it. This is, you know, the noose is around my neck and they're asking me if I want to swing. And even though Huac claimed... want to swing alone or with your friends? <laughs> if you swing with their friends, you might break your neck. That's the easy way to go. And even though Hua claimed that they were now only after individuals and not the movie industry as a whole, the movie industry was so afraid of the repercussions that now everyone was just cooperating. Like, now they were rating, as they called it. <laughs> Studios were, yeah, again, pressuring people like, oh, you're going to go see Hua? Tell them, tell them whatever they want to hear. Name them. Name them. Because we need you to be our well, star. We got a few. We got a few names. <laughs> they saw this damage as being irreparable if they couldn't be on Congress's side. So they're just willing to do whatever. So in March of 1951, Huak resumed their investigations to the film industry and they began with actor Larry Parks and a spirit of let's go ahead and name the names of the committee. Let's name the committee, <laughs> shall we? Jonas Wood was at the head. Other Boo. members of that, Harold Vald of Illinois, Boo. Francis Walter of Pennsylvania, Boo. Morgan Mulder of Missouri, oh, I like him. Clyde Doyle of California, Boo. Boo. James Frazier of Tennessee, Boo. Bernard Kearney of New York, Double boo. Charles Potter of Michigan. Potter boo. Louis Russell was the senior investigator and Frank S. Tavern was Louis the- Russell. <laughs> Frank Tavern was chief counsel. Boo. Boo. All around boo. Amen. Boo. Amen. Boo. Parks initially went in front of the committee agreeing to tell them whatever they wanted to know about his activities as a party member, but he would not go on record outing other members. But after a lengthy session, <laughs> he eventually broke down, apparently in tears, and begged the committee not to make him, quote, crawl through the mud and be an informer. But that's just the kind of sick fetish they were into. <laughs> through several private... Now say it wearing this. <laughs> Ooh, can you say Dashiell Hammett's name wearing this? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so through several private and public sessions of questionings, Park became quite friendly after that. Mm-hmm. But not in the sense of, oh, I'll give you a ride to the airport. But friendly as in, these are... 
the party members' names, and he named Morris Komarovsky, Lee Cobb, J. Edward Bromberg, Anne Revere, Lionel Stander, who we'll get into, mm-hmm. and some others. Park considers himself ruined after that, and he was. Paul Jericho, who has his committee date coming up pretty soon, said about Parks that he was unwilling to follow the example of Parks. If I have to choose between crawling in the mud like Larry Parks or going to jail like my courageous friends of the Hollywood 10, I will certainly choose the latter. Ouch. And after Parks testified and went friendly, he was still blacklisted. (laughs) Despite having left the party shortly before the initial hearings began years earlier, they still blacklisted him. Once he admitted his association with the Communist Party before the committee, Columbia Pictures just dropped them, and a romantic comedy he had made for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer was shelved for like three years because of that. Here's a romantic comedy for you. <laughs> a hammer meets sickle. <laughs> get out of here. Go work in a hamburger stand, kid. <laughs> he couldn't get any work for some time in his career, never really recovered. So, you know, basically what happened with Larry Parks, the moral of that story is you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. The Larry Parks story. The Larry Parks story. <laughs> in April, two actors and two writers were subpoenaed to testify in front of the Huwak. Victor Killian, Fred Graff, Waldo Salt, and Paul Jericho, like I said. Salt and Jericho were named by screenwriter Richard J. Collins. Another story editor was called in a witness, Maida Reyes Rosenberg, who was part of this Communist Party but left in 45. And boy, did she name names, like 40 names. <laughs> that must have been the committee members going home that day. So happy. They had to meet a quota, like, yeah. oh, we got to get our 80. One of the accused, Waldo Salt, said to Representative Doyle, one man's subversion is another man's patriotism. I consider the activities of this committee subversive of the Constitution. And he's right. Around the same time, one of the Hollywood 10, Edward Dimitri, broke his silence and spoke out against the Communist Party for the first time since his yeah. incarceration the previous year. He was becoming not only disillusioned with the Communist Party's ideas on the Korean War, but becoming disillusioned with the fellow 10 comrades who had all fought Huwak together. Once he was out of prison, Herbert Bieberman, another one of the ten, and still active Communist Party member, came around and asked if Dimitri would sign a petition asking for support of parole for the other eight members of the ten. He agreed. Yeah, because they got the shorter sentence. Yeah, both of them got six months. Yeah. Dimitri agreed he would as long as only the parole board would see his signature and it wouldn't be made public. <laughs> Bieberman agreed, and wouldn't you know it, two days later on the front pages of Variety <laughs> and The Hollywood Reporter, it was for everyone to see, so he was immediately fired from Dimitri Columbia. just doesn't learn his lesson. <laughs> <laughs> what do we need a talus guy? So, of course, he did the only rational thing he could. He was like close to a half a million dollars in debt and completely broken after the first round of hearings. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, you know, imagine being ha- that much in debt. Yeah. Like, what would you, would you name names? You mean, though, I've never been a half a million dollars in debt before. Yeah. And especially when that and, after... And you know what? You'll never be half a million dollars in debt. <laughs> you don't even know how to do that. Especially after I went to jail for what I felt was patriotic and no one supported me. And then a friend of mine... I thought you were telling a true story from your life. No, 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 no. I'm talking from Dimitri's point of view. I thought it was patriotic to to download those pictures. (laughs) Yeah, and then to come out and then feel turned on... Turned... (laughs) (laughs) Story is a little bit more true than he thought. (laughs) To feel like my friends turned against me. I can imagine at that point naming names, but dick move anyways. Dimitri. So after, yeah, like I said, completely broken after the first round of hearings, so he decided to separate from the tent and talk to Huwak. He came before the committee in April and confirmed that Hollywood did indeed have a communist infiltration through the unions and guilds. The party had three main reasons they sought to invade the studio system and Hollywood in general. First, they wanted the financial support that came from the big Hollywood incomes. Their goal was to create a teething system where they collect a percentage from salaries of the members with higher pay. Secondly, they wanted the prestige that came with the Hollywood elite. And lastly, and the worst of all, was the confirmation that the communist party wanted to control the content of 
of motion pictures by seizing the guilds in the union, which gave Ihuak exactly what they were looking for, the concept that the red menace threat. But the thing about it is, is that at no point was the communist operations well managed. So yeah. this might have been an idea of theirs, but there was no way that this was going to yeah. happen. Yeah, they had these big ideas. They had all these actors, but a lot of actors were already by 45 to 47 were already leaving the party. So Dimitri then went on to spill the beans regarding the party's activities. He claimed to be one of the seven communists in the Screen Directors Guild and also revealed their identities. Frank Tuttle, Herbert Bieberman, not his friend anymore. Jack Barry, Bernard Warhouse, Chuck Barry? Jack Barry. His cousin? Jack Barry? <laughs> this is you your know, cousin, Jack Barry. You know, you know that, that socialist new... <laughs> movie you're looking for? <laughs> you know that new political ideology <laughs> you've been looking for? Well, get this. This <laughs> is Karl Marx readings. Bernard Vorhaus, Jules Dasden, and Michael Gordon. He also named many more party members within the committee, which included attorneys that had previously helped with the different party members. So he was taken off the blacklist and returned to directing by 1952, but became an enemy of the formerly 10, now 9. He had, a, after that, had just a stigma surrounding him so you know that's why we don't know who edward dimitrik is yeah yeah, yeah. meanwhile bertolt brecht one of the originals <laughs> sipping margaritas in berlin because berlin is full of margaritas margaritaville yeah that's Sit- what they renamed it after world war ii <laughs> sitting in the rubble of world war ii <laughs> wasting <margaritas>. away <laughs> <laughs> again here in nuremberg searching for my lost fuhrer every time something bad happens ah mein kampf <laughs> Don't say that. It's illegal now. It's illegal now. I can't be a communist there. I can't be a Nazi here. Where can I go? Mexico, home of margaritas. They built a wall. In May, they investigated writer Leonard Bercovici, Elvin Hammer, Lloyd Goff, and B. Winter. B. Winter was a former agency secretary, and her name was named by one of my favorite actors, Sterling Hayden. Mm. You know, from uh, he was in The Killing. He was in The Long Goodbye. He was the dirty cop in The Godfather, Crime Wave. Eh, well... I'm glad Pacino did what he did to him. I wish it was real life. <laughs> Hayden, who had spoke to Huak privately and talked, which he would spend the rest of his life regretting, despite being illusioned with the Communist Party, he was still turning names over. It was like the worst thing he'd ever felt he did. <laughs> he claimed that he was recruited by B. Winter. Hayden wasn't really the right fit for the Communist Party because he had served as a spy for the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which was a precursor to the CIA. Yeah. Like he was a spy. Interesting. Or was he? Or was, was he a spy he? or a mole? But when he saw that Huak was initiating round two of its investigations, he wrote a letter to J. Edgar Hoover since they were in the same government together. J. Edgar Hoover strapped off of his brassiere <laughs> and he opened up the letter. He pulled the letter opener from his garter belt. <laughs> he wrote a letter to Hoover asking for forgiveness for his party association during what he called a moment of emotional disturbance. After the FBI said they were not going to clear your name, they suggested he meet privately with them to discuss his activities as a communist member. And he still got subpoenaed and had to appear publicly in front of the committee where he had again named names. He never forgave himself for not standing up to Huwak. The lesson that is slowly starting to build is snitches indeed get stitches, but they also get riches because they won't lose their job. <laughs> it was just absolutely dreadful. According to one reading, one third of those subpoenas cooperated with the committee. Many of those called before Huak were willing to discuss their own activities but refused to drag out any of their former members. However, admirable. Not very admirable. However, after the Supreme Court ruled that individuals could not invoke the Fifth Amendment if they had already testified about themselves, these witnesses had to choose between explaining their own party activities and being coaxed implicating other people. That's how it went. Ronald Reagan, yes, Doc Brown, the, the actor. actor. And his co-chairman. Jerry Lewis. <laughs> he was again brought up for the committee in 1951. He spoke against the communists and told Huwak that he had been fighting over control of the guild for some time now against them. Mm. But he also made it known that he detested the tactics used by the committee now, now that they were starting to... I eat. don't even eat red jelly beans. Here's something I didn't know about the American Legion that you, I don't think you mentioned earlier, was that they were known for boycotting movies that had members who didn't cooperate with Huwak. Mm. And then they had like a lot of members, like 2.8 million members across the country yeah. who were willing to do stuff like that. I always thought they were cool. Yeah, me too. They have cool buildings 
and they stuff have and a they wear hats. in front of it. Yeah. yeah, they're not cool. They're not cool, man. You're not. You know what? You're not cool. Take off that leather jacket, American Legion, because you ain't cool. <laughs> and then there's the most memorable of the friendlies, Elia Kazan. Of all the name namers out there, no one is more hated than Elia Kazan. Probably because <laughs> except he except by Martin Scorsese. Except, yeah, <laughs> probably because he garnered the most acclaim through his career. The way Trumbo symbolizes resistance with the Huac and all the battles that entails, Elia Kazan represents what cooperation with the committee meant. He had a successful career, yeah, but people like never forgave him for what he did. Kazan was part of the Communist Party since the early 30s when he was still part of the theater. He, like many other people in the party, had grown particularly disenfranchised with the Communist Party as it moved away from its Roosevelt years and into its like late 40s Soviet years. Kazan said he was only a member for a year and a half in its early days. And by the early 50s, the days when Huwak was having people sent to prison, Kazan had intellectually disassociated completely with the Communist Party and was now committed anti-communist. So he saw nothing wrong with telling the committee when they sent a subpoena for him everything that he knew. He met with Huwak in January of 52 for a private executive session. His original goal was to inform them that indeed he had been a member for a year and a half and quit in disgust, but he had no intentions of ratting out other members. And there's this idea of Kazan naming names freely to the committee, but really it was <laughs> like, oh yeah, him and him and him. <laughs> Going in there with his shirt unbuttoned. <laughs> Smoking a cigarette. You ever hear of... Yeah, I got another one for you. <laughs> We're not even... Trotsky. <laughs> Leon Trotsky. Ever heard of him? Cindy Lapa. <laughs> She's coming. <laughs> you just wait. In all truth, it was torture for him to come to the conclusion to start naming names. Like, it was not an easy decision. The studio's pressuring him to give up his friends. Some of his friends, like Lillian Hellman and Arthur Miller, were furious at him. They broke their friendships up because of this. Other party members who ended up being friendly wanted permission from Gazam to name him. He knew that his prosperity as an artist and as a person who needs to eat was at risk if he didn't cooperate. So on April 10th, he met with the committee again in a private closed session where he spoke openly about his experiences and the next day the transcript was released publicly. Dick move. The names in the account were Louis Leverett, J. Edward Bromberg, Phoebe Brand, Morris Karvanovsky, Clifford Detz, and Art Smith. All people who were members when he had originally started in the 30s. See, uh, like a lot of these names, like what, who? Yeah, exactly. But the reason we're saying what, who is because, because, of of because they yeah. were named. Yeah. Because yeah. wife wrote a statement that she would release to a newspaper pretending to be Elia. Uh, de- yeah, his wife wrote a letter to be put in the newspaper ad from him because she wanted, yeah. Detailing the issues that led to the testimony and the cooperation and made him out to be a patriot. But really, it just made his old party members really angry at him. <laughs> and through his many successes over the decades that he worked, that hung with him. In 1999, the Academy awarded him a lifetime Oscar because after all, he directed On the Waterfront, East of Eden, yeah. Streetcar Named Desire, Viva Zapata. There was an enormous controversy of the award and the remaining 10 and their supporters as well as members of the Academy sat silent as he was awarded. That stuck with him for what, 40 years? As the 50s grew on, it only seemed like the stakes were getting higher for anyone not proving themselves to be an all-American patriot. In 52, Charlie Chaplin was denied re-entry into the U.S. for his stray political beliefs. He was subpoenaed by the committee in 1947, but eventually released from testifying. The government had no real evidence that proved him to be a threat to a national security, but somehow he was trying to sneak communist propaganda into his films. Charlie Chaplin? Yeah. yeah. He left to England for what he thought would be a few months and found that upon trying to return, he was denied access, which was arranged by Attorney General Thomas McGarney. Under U.S. law, grounds for denying a foreigner admission include moral turpitude and political authority. And terminal silliness. <laughs> <laughs> Too many deaths. Terminal silliness. We're not going to have it in this country. Contagious. Not after the Nazis. We're not going to have terminal silliness, okay? Everyone get serious. Tuck that shirt in. Train that tie. Put that right shoe on your right foot, okay? <laughs> Make your cane less bendy. Take up that mustache. You look like him. Buy a new hat. It would be 20 years before Chaplin can come back to the U.S. Wow. Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. Anybody who had any kind of Hollywood liberalism was like, well, they obviously hate America and they're peeing on the flag and kill him. I mean, hate Charlie Chaplin for being in love with 17-year-old girls. Yeah. Not for being in love with a 90-year-old ideology. 
and going to bed with it. <laughs> and betting it. <laughs> he was courting that ideology in front of everybody. In June of 53 is when the Rosenbergs were executed for treason, for being Russian spies. Keep in mind, only recently... Sparkle lounger. <laughs> keep in mind that only recently were people absolutely sure they were guilty. <laughs> for many years, people thought the Rosenbergs were innocent. Certainly at the time they were executed. That's scary. <laughs> Two months later, after the Rosenbergs were executed, Lucille Ball was accused of being a oh, communist. Boy. Oh, they do not love Lucy. Ball, he, is that hair really red? We want to know. We, this is why you're is here. Is it red red? <laughs> is it commie red? On September 12th, 1950. Ricky! Oh, boy! Ricky, get him away from me. <laughs> tell him where you're from. <laughs> I, tell him where you're from and they'll certainly <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ricky, come oh, on. Ricky, get off that boat. <laughs> Stop chasing Breck to Germany. So in September of 53, the LA Herald Express front page banner reads, Lucille Ball was read in 36, <laughs> which I swear is an episode of I Love Lucy. <laughs> it was true she had signed up in 1936 as a communist, but it was at the urging of her grandfather, who was a socialist and a radical. She went before Huwak a week before the LA Herald Express released the story. She had a private meeting with the committee, informed them that her and her brother, she named her own brother, <laughs> had signed up to just she had please- a brother? Yeah, she had a brother. Was he funny? Yeah, it was Ricky. They commit incest. <laughs> the show's about that. That's why they sleep in separate beds, but they also make kissy faces. Right? I mean, <laughs> Little Ricky is a crime against nature. <laughs> Didn't you know that? I thought that was a show. Uh, am I misunderstanding the theme? And Fred and Ethel, that was mother and father. This is what the Hollywood liberals want. This is the America that they want. Such they, a progressive show. <laughs> She was saying that her and her brother had only signed up to please their grandfather. She swore off communism, said that she had never supported it, so Huak dismissed her. No harm, mm. right? Nope. Her transcript had been made public a few days later. Mm. And a few days after that, radio commentator Walter Winchell announced on the news over the airwaves, the top television comedian had been confronted with her membership in the Communist Party. And that did not look good. <laughs> and a few days after that is when the Herald Express released the story, and the phone lines at Desi Lu Studios went wonky bonkers. <laughs> so to quiet the public and get the screwball redhead back in her place, Desi Arnaz came out. I, I remember seeing footage of this or actually not footage but listening to audio but recording but there. yeah I remember being there as a young child um, I worked in the child minds uh, of Hollywood of Hollywood before the taping of the show because they had a live studio audience Desi Arnaz had to go out this is what he says oh no Lucille Ball is no communist Lucy has never been a communist I, not, think, I, I think I might have not, seen yeah not now and, not, and never will be I was kicked out of Cuba because of communism we both despise the communists for everything they stand for Lucille Ball is 100% America she's as American as Barney Baruch I don't know who that is <laughs> and Ike Eisenhower tomorrow who? Who's Eisenhower? Tomorrow morning, the complete transcript of Lucy's testimony will be released to the papers, and you can read it for yourself. Then you will know that this is a pack of lies. Please, ladies and gentlemen, don't believe every piece of bunk you read in today's papers. And now I want you to meet my wife, my favorite redhead. In fact, that's the only thing read about her. And that's not even that legitimate. I have definitely heard this yeah. before. And it worked, and the audience went back on her side. She appeared before Huwak again, and they, <laughs> they exonerated her of all charges, even though, let me remind you, they never had any charges against her. You can't get charged for having a different political belief. The Los Angeles Times newspaper vindicated her with a banner headline, Lucia Ball, not red. Uh, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover admitted that he loved I Love Lucy. It was among his favorite shows. He probably dressed like Lucy. <laughs> I peg him as an Ethel. <laughs> or Carolyn Appleby. He's, he's a Fred dressed as an Ethel. <laughs> you got the body of a Fred. <laughs> The fashion sense of an Ethel. <laughs> Let's talk about Lionel Stander now. I didn't know his story continued. Yeah, it, it's actually pretty interesting. One of the most defiant figures in all the Huwak hearings was Lionel Stander, who was named by both Larry Parks and communist sympathizer Mark Lawrence, who himself had accused Stander of being the one who introduced him to the party line. When that happened, Slander, um, Stander slapped <laughs> Stander slapped Slander. Stander slapped him with a slander suit and made arrangements to put himself in front of the line of John Wood and the committee. He was right to retaliate against Lawrence. By all accounts, Stander was never officially a communist. He was, however, a a lot of other things. He was quite active
active in leftist politics. He was an organizer of the Screen Actors Guild. He was a member of the Hollywood Anti-Fascist League. He was a supporter of the Conference of Studio Unions. He was active in the Salinas Valley Lettuce Strike. He was Lettuce sup- Strike? Yeah, lettuce Strike. Her? Lettuce Strike. Oh, let... No, it's Lettuce. Oh. Oh, oh, yeah, that makes more sense. (laughs) A bunch of heads of cabbage and lettuce were picketing around them. What's the big deal? I have a feeling that the lettuce world is a lot more cutthroat than we make it up to be. I'm not a farmer working in Central Valley. I'm not a lettuce picker in Central Valley. And I never claim to be, and I will not name any farmers that work in the Central Valley. Come on, name a couple. Ah... Cesar Chavez. <laughs> he supported the Scottsboro Boys defense, the Tom Mooney case, and he was in many guild campaigns. Because of his outspoken positions on politics, it had been hard for Standard to find work since 1940, as you mentioned. He had been, like, for a very long time. Yeah, he, from, like, the first round, they yeah. were like, eh, There's something about know. this guy, yeah. yeah. Even before his name had been brought up by all They the f- took off his mask. <laughs> Mr. Joseph <Willoughby>. Stalin! <laughs> I wanted to be an actor! I auditioned <laughs> for <laughs> auditioned for Dracula! <laughs> they gave it to Zambozo! <laughs> Zambozo from Romania! Balabozos, they call them. <laughs> Even before his name had been brought up by the friendlies, Huwak was suspicious of Standard being in the Communist Party. One of their best, quotations, mm-hmm. pieces of evidence was in his appearance in the film No Time to Marry, which was done in 1938, where Standard was seen whistling the Internationale, which was the communist theme song, mm. which is not a very memorable theme song. <laughs> they took that as evidence of like, yeah, he's definitely in the party. Yeah, <laughs> They couldn't that. distinguish between actors playing characters and people. These are not people who appreciate a film. No, <laughs> yeah. certainly. They probably yeah. never saw one. The first one I saw, they got too scared because there was a train coming and at they them. jumped out of the way they, they, i'll never the, again <laughs> i'm gonna get the people behind this when i grow up i bought a ticket for that train <laughs> it tries to kill me i'll kill it i'll kill all of them i'll kill, I'll kill this whole train. industry that train is gonna derail after couldn't get work for a while he hit a stride of productivity in the industry between 43 to 46 before a huwak started round one of the trials after accusations were made against him in 51 standard requested to be brought in front of the committee it took two years in may of 1953 before he was able to plead his case to them he started by pledging his support in the fight against subversive activities. He added, I know a group of fanatics who are desperately trying to undermine the Constitution of the United States by depriving artists and others of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness without due process of law. And these people are engaged in the conspiracy outside of all the legal processes to undermine our very fundamental American contempts under which our entire system of jurisprudence exists. And Huwak was like, yeah, Hey, wait a second. He's talking about us. <laughs> I, it's, they just keep falling for these yeah. things. I'll go on. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. He named names. Don't names. <laughs> I know Jay Parnell Thomas. <laughs> I know Richard Nixon. John Wood. Oh, that's my name. For standing up to Huwak, many considered him to be a goddamn hero. But being a hero during this era wasn't as clear as it should have been. So his career was, of course, tanked after that. Put his name on the list. He survived for the rest of the 50s as a stockbroker on Wall Street. He was a journeyman stage actor. He was a corporate spokesman. He managed to return to the stage in the early 60s as well as playing role as the bartender in Once Upon a Time in the West. I thought you were going to say cheers. You know Woody? It's him. He eventually landed a recurring role as Max in the 70s show Heart to Heart starring Robert Wagner and Stephanie Powers which seems like a punishment that Huwak would... (laughs) set upon you in 20 years <laughs> Robert Wagner is gonna kill Natalie Wood and you're gonna have to hang around with him and talk about it we need a rat <laughs> in 53 Arthur Miller who had been part of the blacklist for a long time now who mm-hmm. was once part of the communist party wrote his play The Crucible about the Salem witch trials which interesting I used the word crucible you earlier. did I, oh I noticed it I saw. I see what you're doing you foreshadowed the hell out of this 
Yeah. If you don't know what the Crucible is, it's about the same witch trials when panicked individuals began turning on each other. Sound familiar? It was an <laughs> no. allegory for the witch hunting McCarthy kill a commie for mommy sweep. <laughs> in particular, the Huwak trials that Miller was part of. In 57, he would appear in front of the committee, I believe, with Marilyn Monroe by his side because it was his new wife. Oh, yeah, that's right. And refused to name names and they sent him to prison for a contempt of Congress. My God, the affairs in that I marriage. <laughs> he was just showing off. Like, yeah, babe, come check this out. I'm <laughs> soups cool. I have powerful friends. <laughs> you ever heard of the Congress? <laughs> You ever heard of Lillian Hellman? No. <laughs> Boop boopy doop. <laughs> Some people accuse Huwak of going after the movie industry not only because they felt the content was a Trojan horse for CB propaganda, but mainly because they'd garner publicity trying to build support of Huwak so it came so big that you can't topple it. You could topple it. But to it. what end? Did they just want money for themselves? Or? I don't, I don't, you know, that's the thing. I don't know what was feeding them immediately, but I think that there's an ideology. Definitely there's an ideology they want to become so powerful to fight off any anti-patriotism. But yeah, you're right there had to be some naked like yeah the money in our pockets yeah you think it's about like america no (laughs) you think i like this country no yeah i just i'm from russia (laughs) i just want to redesign the flag this is how they're gonna let me do it i just wanted to not have to wait in line to get a tour of capitol hill (laughs) that's what we're in this for the hollywood communist party investigations mark the end of the prime years of huwak joseph Mm. Stalin died in 53 two years later the korean war ended but between those two events in 1954 everyone had just about enough of joseph mccarthy (laughs) in early 54 joe mccarthy's investigation of security threats in the u.s army was televised. He charged the U.S. Army with being too soft on communism. He went toe-to-toe with the special counsel for the U.S. Army, a guy named Joseph Welch, who many saw was unbelievably composed and witty. And the entire nation got to see the unique style of McCarthy's bullying over the television screen. Something about his wit stirred something really nasty McCarthy and began yelling, shouting, point of order, point of order, tearing down witnesses. He called the well-decorated general a disgrace. He would later accuse other military members of being members of the Communist Party. And Welch said to McCarthy, you know, until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty or recklessness. And it was for everyone to see. Everyone I like that. I like that that's how this ends. Yeah. It's, it's the moment. You twilight zone <laughs> yourself, Mr. McCarthy. <laughs> it gets even more twilight zone. McCarthy's display of viciousness turned public opinion against the senator. On December 2nd, 1954, the Senate voted to censure him, describing his behavior as contrary to the senatorial traditions. Not an expulsion of censures, but like, man, you are not cool. <laughs> like, we really don't want you representing us anymore. So after that, he spiraled into alcoholism and died in 1957, which is a real shame because I would have really liked to see him see the hippies take over the world yeah that would have been hilarious comb your hair cut your hair <laughs> he didn't even get to see spartacus oh oh my god that would have been great what that guy looks like me <laughs> the work and the importance quotations of the committee continued to tank throughout the 50s and early 60s until the committee itself was renamed the house internal security committee in 1969 with their new name they announced a new focus which was domestic terrorism basically just attacking anti-war groups mm-hmm. but by that time a public opinion was again shifting on issues of war itself so again the public opinion was just it it's the one that entrapped all of this and now it's getting it's like a wave just like okay we're done we're done hating everyone let's go back to liking it's just but let's not forget about the face of the Hollywood Ted let's talk about Dalton Tremble a little bit yeah there's a wonderful documentary out there on him they just did a movie with Brian Cranston mm-hmm. the most recognized name to come out of the Hollywood yeah like you said was Dalton Tremble he yeah. is the author of Johnny Got His Gun which is one of my favorite books a well known screenwriter he was also as you mentioned incarcerated for contempt of Congress he stayed in prison in Ashland Kentucky for 10 months because of that and emerged from it ready to work armed with new valuable life lessons like <laughs> 
got to beat somebody up on the first day of prison or else they're not going to let you hang around loosey-goosey. Like how to make beer in your own toilet. <laughs> wine. You make wine in the toilet. He made beer. <laughs> I need more hops. Which means something else in prison. <laughs> Don't ask. Don't tell. Nothing. Trust me, he wouldn't. He was fully aware that he was blacklisted, but Tremble was not the kind of guy to just let that stop him from working. After selling his Lazy Tea Ranch in Lockwood Valley, which is in the Tahone Pass. It's funny because I kept hearing like north of Hollywood, north of Hollywood. It's north of LA. He sold his ranch that he loved. Him and his wife, they followed some of their friends and uh, some other blacklisted writers down to Mexico where they had an understanding that they could live cheap and work on Mexican films together. <laughs> and although they had a grand old time drinking, there wasn't much work in the Mexican film industry for them. The only real way you can get paid for working was using pseudonyms. Sometimes he'd write for women's magazines using his wife's name. <laughs> or you can get a front. A front is when you get another screenwriter, uh... you submit your thing to them and they get it made and you pretty much split the money or you're basically living however the front wants you to live. Like if they want 70, you gotta yeah. take whatever they're gonna give you. You can take your 30. They get the credit and you get the money, whatever they wanna give you. But like this, he could put work out and earn money as little as it was, considerably less for his talents. In 1953, he wrote the story for Roman Holiday. It was fronted <laughs> by his friend screenwriter Ian... It's a little too close to Hunter. Russia. <laughs> Audrey Hepburn, she looks a little foreign to us. <laughs> Hair's a little short, don't you think? <laughs> kind of boyish, <laughs> coming from France maybe, where it's all a little gray. <laughs> Genders are a little mixed up over there. <laughs> and a boy can really lose himself? <laughs> <laughs> One second to France, please. <laughs> One way. Which is not how my sexuality is anymore. So he, he wrote the story for Roman Holiday. It was affronted by his friend who later got blacklisted, Ian McKellen. Ian McKellen? Ian McKellen. Ian McClellan Hunter. the gray Hunter. list. <laughs> Ian McClellan Hunter, sorry. Roman Holiday won three Academy Awards, including Best Screenplay. <laughs> Best Screenplay written by a communist. <laughs> Trumbo's name wouldn't be rightfully added until 1992. By 1954, the situation in Mexico wasn't really working out, so Trumbo and his family moved back to LA, where Huak was still hacking away at the movie industry. One of the first things he did was contact two independent producers of B-movies, the King Brothers Productions, run by Frank and Maurice Kaczynski, who quickly sent him some stories in a novel that they thought had movie potential. The product of one of those was 1954's Carnival Story, which he does not get credit for, but he did get money, so look at that. Next year, he wrote the screen for, for the court martial of Billy Mitchell. Another big win came for Trembo in 1956, when he won yet another Oscar for the story and screenplay for The Brave One. The name that appeared on the screen was Robert Rich, which was a pseudonym. He could not claim his Oscar, but a pseudonym <laughs> could. It was moments like this that was the real punishment of the blacklist it felt like almost the most severe. They thought that they could remove his ability to work, but he found a way. And even with his obstacle, he achieved something great and he was awarded for it, but he couldn't bask in the glory, you know? The next day, the Oscar went unspoken for and apparently there were several men claiming to be Robert Rich there to pick up the reward, which sounds like the end of Spartacus. I am Robert Rich. I am Robert Rich. No, I am Robert Rich. The tension and frustration he was going through was making great screenplays. Trumbull understood that there was nothing really especially artistic about him or his contemporaries. He even referred to the Hollywood 10 as being a bunch of mediocrities. And he didn't want to be remembered as a martyr. The problem is that he knew that all the rebelling and letter writing and craftsmanship would not bring the blacklist down. It would be left to the public opinion shifting. The morals would have to mutate back. That time came in 1960. He wrote seven more movies throughout the decade before he wrote the screenplays for Spartacus and Exodus, both released in 1960. There are claims by many that this isn't true, but apparently producer and star Kirk Douglas was adamant on Dalton Trouble receiving credit for this. Yeah. A more valid claim was by Otto Preminger, director of Exodus, which was released in December of that year, two months later, where he publicly announced that he had hired blacklisted writer Dalton Tremble for his film. <laughs> Exodus
this was the first film to bear Trumbull's name since Emergency Wedding in 1950, which is a hilarious title. <laughs> Quick, we need a wedding! Uh, it's an emergency, it's an emergency. wedding. Spartacus or Exodus, either way, 1960 was the year that the Blacklist officially was denounced. You want to talk about Spartacus for a little bit? Okay. Did you get to watch Spartacus? Not yet. Watching Spartacus, you're not thinking like, hmm, this is a real allegory for the Blacklist. <laughs> but that scene with the I am Spartacus, like yeah. that, that sums it up. That That's all he needed to do. <laughs> for those who don't know the scene, yes. let's spoil it. Hit me with it. They're asking, you know, hey, who's a radical old Spartacus around here? Hey, we'll here? free everybody else, but uh, <laughs> we need a Spartacus to, you know, come forward. So they want to know who Spartacus is. They're all chained together, so he stands up. The guy next to him feels he's standing up, who I think is Tony Randall. Tony Randall. Tony. <laughs> I am Tony Randall. <laughs> Quit bragging. No one wants to know. <laughs> no one's arguing with you on that. So the guy next to him stands up and says, I'm Spartacus before he can. And then someone else stands up. Oh, I'm Spartacus. And then everyone stands up. I'm Spartacus. If everyone had done that in this thing, if yeah. they said, no, I'm not telling you who communists are. Yeah. If everyone got on the same page yeah. with that, or if everyone said, yeah, I'm a communist. We're all communists. We're all communists. Yeah. It would have been fine. Yeah. You can't fight that. Yep. He figured it out. He figured it out. It took a prison sentence and years <laughs> of struggle to figure it out. And living in Mexico, <laughs> which was the worst punishment of all. We hadn't built the wall yet, though. <laughs> That's not so bad. So the American Legion, known for boycotting movies that supported communist media workers, had boycotted Spartacus. Someone who publicly ignored their protests and made a fool of them was President John F. Kennedy. So the American Legion had him killed. <laughs> they got one of the cannons. The second shooter was a cannon. Imagine how they must have felt having the president go after the walk, American Legion. Walk right past them all and be like, yeah. I'm going to watch Spartacus. <laughs> he what? comes out, I'm Spartacus. I am a Spartacus. I am Spartacus. <laughs> So in 1970, Trumbull got it and gave a speech to the Screenwriters Guild saying that the blacklist was a time of evil, caught in a situation that had passed beyond the control of mere individuals. Each person reacted to it as his own nature, his needs, and his convictions, and his particular circumstances compelled him to, which sounds a little bit like a forgiveness, but nah. <laughs> a few years later, in 1975, another barrier was broken. It was Jackie a long- Robinson joined the major leagues. <laughs> joined the American Legion. <laughs> Jackie Robinson became the first communist ever <laughs> to play football. And he shared the ball with everybody. We were all one team together. It was a long time after the blacklist and Holly- I am Spartacus. <laughs> yeah, we all saw it, Jackie. But I'm Spartacus. I okay. Now send me Arthur Miller. I've got some questions for his wife. It'd be so funny if Jackie Robinson introduced Marilyn Monroe to Joe DiMaggio. <laughs> Is my friend Joe. Oh, hi. Arthur who? 1975, another big year for all this. It has been a long time since the blacklist and Hollywood, well, even five years. Hollywood was making up for its injustice by giving credit to the uncredited writers and directors. In a formal ceremony, Trumbull received his 1956 award for mm. Best Screen for The Brave One. You got that. That same year, 1975, six months after Nixon's departure due to the Watergate scandal, Congress dismantled Huac. Good. They were later referred to by Representative Don Edwards as a kangaroo court. Good. <laughs> One of the men who pushed for the end of Huac was our old friend who tried to save Chavez Ravine, Frank Wilkinson. He organized the National Committee to abolish Huac, later renamed the National Committee Against Repressive yeah. Legislation. Good for him. A hometown hero. Good for him. Yeah. You know, I like Frank Wilkinson. One hometown hero <laughs> with a lot of hometown villains in this episode. <laughs> so the Hollywood 10, they achieved a legendary status since then. Even though, like, Trumbull would point out, like, none of us, like, there was two people that were famous. <laughs> they really are this sign of this rebellious statue now. Yeah. yeah. They should make a statue of them. You're Right. Ten statues distributed all over Hollywood. <laughs> Gotta find them all. Where's Brecht? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it's in Germany. <laughs> Those who named names were never truly forgiven by some, and the witch hunting of the Red Trials of the 40s and 50s are remembered as a terrifying and scarring time for this country. I mean, it could have gotten bad. Like, if we... Yeah. The thing is, that's sort of what started in Germany, like, Jews, 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 Jews! Yeah. <laughs> but we we were on that path, but we sort of stopped ourselves, yeah. which is something to be proud of. Yeah, I think it's something, but, definitely, yeah. we we It's the thing that still goes on to this day where we have... Oh, yeah. Two, I, I guess we haven't really stopped, yeah, no. but, but at least we stopped with communists. Well, what I'm trying to say is there, there are always two sides almost equally fighting each other at a point. Like, this country is just two fists locked into each other. <laughs> that should be our new flag. <laughs> <laughs> two locked fists covered in blood and bruises. <laughs> it's funny with thinking back on what I know about Joe McCarthy because I know Twilight Zone for sure had a lot oh, yeah. of episodes that were like all, obvious. All of them. Oh, yeah, <laughs> pretty much all of them because I watched a lot of old TV growing up so I just knew Joe McCarthy was bad. <laughs> like, yeah. growing up, I didn't know why and every time I'd watch a movie that I liked, I'm like, oh, yeah, Joe McCarthy's bad. Like, Your parents it is- would tell you stories about <laughs> Joe McCarthy this so you'd behave. Yeah. He's gonna come in here and repress you in some way. <laughs> so behave. <laughs> it was interesting learning how it grew and then how it was dismantled. And it's basically the same thing did both public opinion. It's like the uh, the French Revolution. Yeah. Guillotine, guillotine. Oh no, guillotine. Oh no. Communism. Who'd have thought? Yeah, who'd have thought it would have created such a hubbub? In our backyard. I know. It's really scary to think that this there really could be happened. communists among yeah. us. <laughs> that these pinkos want everything. <laughs> they want to change the way we think. I didn't realize how serious it was. Yeah, yeah. It always, my idea of the black was always like, oh, well, they can't write. That sucks. But no, like they we're, also. They can't do anything. They were also, yeah, their names were marked. And <laughs> they had to go back to working grocery stores or whatever <laughs> they did before they got into the movie industry. They um, had to go back to recording podcasts before they let us all vow. Never to let this happen again. Let us. I think I said everything I needed to say. Well, there's one thing you still had to say. What's that? Are you a member of the Communist Party? You bet your ass I am. Well, if you want to leave a review because communism is sharing your (laughs) opinions, leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know how big of a communist you are by giving us five red stars. And don't forget to name your name. (laughs) It helps us, gets more people listening to us, makes us easier to find for other people. Like us on Facebook. We have a lot of articles. Follow us on Twitter. We're getting better at that. Yeah, that's the thing that we've read the manual for. And we're like, oh, that's what it's I finally read Twitter for dummies, (laughs) the 2016 edition. I read every year, but this is the year I'm going to implement Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm following all the changes, slight changes they make in programming. At LA Meekly for Twitter. Instagram, LA underscore Meekly, a picture most days most of days the year. of just us and the stuff we see. Eventually, we'll be in their pictures as well at some point. Yeah. Eventually, we'll accidentally flip the camera and you'll see Greg's yeah. eyelid. And my double chin, yeah. <laughs> Somehow, they're next to each other. Yeah, they, they consume each <laughs> he other. He is a mess. I, he is Quasimodo. <laughs> we don't mention that, but Greg is in the living in a tower. I'm a living gargoyle. <laughs> <laughs> we really buried the lead. 26 episodes in you didn't know that we're disney characters ha 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 isn't oh. it funny tumblr is the home base lameekly.tumblr.com yeah whenever our episode is released we post a lot of stuff on our tumblr just so mm-hmm. you can follow you can a see little pictures bit. you can see dalton trumbo's mustache in a bathtub mm-hmm. he's in the bathtub that's the poster it made me want to watch the documentary <laughs> send us an email yeah please ollie.meekly at gmail.com let us know would you rat us out yeah. to the, to the uh, committee send a yes or a no in a checkbox <laughs> to ally meekly store 2100 uh, pennsylvania road <laughs> Care of the White House, 1600 <laughs> Pennsylvania Avenue. Address it to Barack Obama. He'll know what it means. Trust us. He's in our pocket. Communist. If you want to, you can find us on Stitcher. We're there. Pocket casts we're now on. All oh, sorts are we? Okay, of things. Cool. Yeah. If you've made it this far, you're clearly, unless you have like tinfoil attached to some, like a Slim Jim or something, yeah. and you're listening to this somehow. You on know? a ham radio somewhere in yeah. a truck in like Vermont. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
Hi. <laughs> Stay off the Adderall. <laughs> that has been yet another episode of LA Meekly, naming names without remorse since 2013. Well done. We did it. We did it. Mm-hmm.